Thank you to the worship team. Just hearing that song at the end, a cappella, it's like a foretaste of heaven. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. You can look in your blue pew Bible if you don't have it on your phone. It's a good discipline when you've got an opportunity to read the Bible, to read it for yourself and not just trust some guy who says he's talking about the Bible. Mark chapter 8. This is the very Word of God. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign truly I say to you no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they, be- they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent them 
he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty, powerful God, we give you praise that your grip strength on us cannot be broken, that you will hold us fast if we belong to Jesus Christ, that we will not be let go, that we can trust your power because we trust your character. And I pray, Lord, that this morning the power of your word would give us clarity that you would cause our lack of faith to be washed away, even that you would grant us a renewing faith, a faith that believes in the power of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and to bring us to heaven. Lord, we do pray and ask that you would continue to bring the power of your gospel to bear throughout the world. We think of Gavin Peacock, who is on sabbatical right now and is helping out Amy and Park Chapel in London, England. We ask that the word of God would go forth in that church, in that needy land of England. We ask that there would be a mass of repentance and a turning to you in faith. We think as well of Jeff Jones, who is a former pastor in this church, who is now in New Brunswick, even as he preaches this morning, preaches in an evangelistic opportunity he has at a new church. We pray that you would give him great liberty to preach the gospel and help him in his church planting efforts in New Brunswick. We think as well of our brothers and sisters in Cochrane and for Grace Cochrane Church, and we pray for Pastor Josh Carey, the newly voted-in pastor for that church, as he preaches there this morning, we ask, Lord, help him by your Spirit that your word would be felt with power amongst the people. And Lord, we pray in this province that your gospel would go forth. We pray that it would stand as a witness and a testimony to all those who are our governors in government, in various levels of government. We pray for Danielle Smith, our premier. We ask that she would turn from her sins, that she would be saved. And we ask, Lord, that she would govern wisely as a premier. We pray for our mayor, Jody Gondek. We pray that she would flee from the wrath to come and find refuge and security, not in the philosophies of man, but in Jesus Christ alone. That would be for her good, and even for the people of Calgary, it would be to our benefit. We pray as well for Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister. We ask that he would turn from his sins, that he would turn from all self-reliance and all seeking the, the, seeking the approval of men, and rather that he would seek the approval of you, Lord, that he would seek to find forgiveness of sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that he would be able to know that he is accepted by you, Heavenly Father, in the beloved Jesus Christ. We pray that for his soul. We pray that he would be kept from evil and that he would seek to promote righteousness in this land. Lord, we do ask that you would continue to have your gospel go forward. There are people here even this morning who are strangers to you, yet they might think that they are 
that they are safe, they might think that they are believing, and yet they are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that you, by your word, would do a miracle and create faith in men and women, boys and girls, and that you would do a miraculous work this morning, and that you would get all the glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1986, there was uh, an archaeological dig beside the Sea of Galilee, and they found a boat. It was a boat dating from the earliest part of the first century, and it's been known as the Sea of Galilee boat, or the Jesus boat. Now, there was no evidence that Jesus had ever been on this boat, but there was evidence of the fact that people would go in boats of that size and they would fish on the Sea of Galilee, or as it's also known, the Lake of Tiberias. So it's important that we are aware that there's real stuff, artifacts, that present evidence of the way that people used to live long ago. You go to a museum, you see artifacts, you're reminded, oh, this is what they used back then. When it comes to Christian faith, we have not only this material evidence of, of ships dug up by the Sea of Galilee, we have a written record. This is evidence. These testimonies written down. And not only that, we have testimonies based on eyewitness accounts. People who were there. They saw things. They recorded things of what really happened. So there's evidence all over the place. And yet, evidence is not enough. It's not enough. In Mark 8 that we just read, we're going to see that it doesn't matter how much evidence is available. Evidence alone is not enough to change unbelief to belief. It's just not enough. So Ben Shapiro, I won't ask for a show of hands, who knows Ben Shapiro, because then I know who's been watching Daily Wire and who hasn't been. If you don't know, any, you don't know who he is, it doesn't matter. Ben Shapiro, he's a Jewish conservative pundit. He said famously, Facts don't care about your feelings. Seems like kind of a conservative pundit thing to say. Facts don't care about feelings. They don't care about your feelings. But if I can kind of reverse this, and I would actually apply this to Ben Shapiro, who is not a Christian, but who should be. It applies to him. The simple fact is for so many people, Our feelings don't care about the facts. Our feelings don't care about the facts. Because if they did, this place would be even fuller than it is. That the whole city of Calgary would be here at this church and every other gospel-preaching church. Nobody would be at home. Everybody would be at church wanting to hear more about the facts 
But people's feelings get in the way. We know that the, the, the simple fact is no woman wants to admit this. No man wants to say that it's true. We all think that we're rational creatures. You know, when we give a, you give a legal affidavit, we say, I, the undersigned, being of sound mind and body, do attest and confirm the following facts. So we'll, we'll do that. But we also know that in the face of evidence, we trust our feelings. We trust our feelings. We trust that internal principle that the Bible calls the flesh. We trust the flesh and our feelings rather than the facts. Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, said that we are to put no confidence in the flesh. The wisdom of the Proverbs says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. Or, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Same kind of idea, Proverbs 12, 15. By contrast, Jesus came and said, I am the truth, John 14, 6. He came to bear witness to the truth, John 18, 37. And if people listen to him, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. John 8, 32. See, Jesus cares about facts. He cares about facts. He cares about truth. But for all people, for everybody you meet, left to their own devices, feelings don't care about the facts. And that, friends, is why we need God. We need God. it's, It's not enough to have the facts. We need God. We need God's grace. We need God's power to overcome our slavery to our flesh and to our feelings. We need God to overcome our unbelief. We need Him to overcome that and then to give us the greatest gift that we can know, even the gift of faith. The gift of faith, faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith where we rest and rely upon Jesus Christ and receive all that He is for us. Now Jesus is going to confront us as readers of Mark 8. He's going to confront us our unbelief, even for Christian believers sitting here, you and me. Because we can fall back into this habit where our feelings don't actually care about the facts. And so, let's start off with the evidence. My first point is the evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. You know, look at this miraculous scene there in Mark chapter 8. This amazing feeding of the 4,000. It's a, it's a miraculous scene. Jesus, you know, he can, by this point, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, you can see Jesus can perform these miracles. And he can do it now to, so frequently. You're like, uh, which feeding is this? You know, how he, he done this before. He, just, he can kind of do these 
oh, this is the feeding of the 4,000. And, and they become sort of commonplace, these miracles. And you know what they say? Familiarity breeds contempt. And so Jesus, he's, he's performing this miracle feeding. And you just note the simple fact of it. And that's kind of Jesus' point. He can just do it. He can, he can show compassion to these people that were far away, out in the, far away from places to buy food or get food, and they're basically in the wilderness. And he can have compassion on them, and he can perform a miracle to provide for them. That's kind of the point. The point is that then this feeding of the 4,000, it provides evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. So that phrase is not original to me. If you're a little older, you'll maybe be familiar with a book by the apologist Josh McDowell. And he made it the title of a book. Evidence that, de- that demands a verdict. Now, Jesus was able to miraculously intervene and skip all the secondary causes in nature and bypass the normal preservation of the providence of God, and Jesus, the divine Son, He could simply create all of this food supernaturally. He could start with a loaf, start with a fish, but He could make them multiply. Now, being supernatural, as soon as I say that, as soon as I say it's supernatural, it doesn't mean that it's metaphorical. It doesn't mean that it's some type of psychosomatic dream experience that these people had. He made the bread. He made the fish. He made them multiply. They multiplied. The evidence was there. The evidence was in the meal. I mean, we say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You you don't know that one? Yeah, maybe you know that one. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. They ate it. They, they put it in their, you know, put it in their mouth. It was in their stomach. They were digesting it. That's the evidence right there. And it was evidence that demands a verdict. That's the point. That's why he was doing it. It was compassionate, but it was also to illustrate things. And, but that evidence, you would think that's all that's required. All that we need is the evidence. That's what some people think. Oh, you just need the evidence. So people will, Christians will work hard at presenting the evidence to the world with the assumption that if more evidence is presented, more people will come to the correct verdict. I present evidence every Sunday. I present evidence. The evidence of God's Word. We display it in the unchanging Word applied to ever-changing lives. Like, even you folks here, your lives are evidence of the power of the gospel. There's evidence everywhere. We're awash in evidence. But every sermon is not successful in getting conversions, although I wish it was. Every evidence that's presented doesn't get the right verdict because feelings don't care about the facts. That's the problem. And the unbelieving heart will not accept bare reason. It won't. Jesus 
presented the evidences, as we do weekly in this service, and as you might do daily in your life, but presenting the evidence alone doesn't convert anybody. Something more is needed. But before we get to what is needed, Jesus shows us the plight of people whose feelings don't care about the facts. You remember back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus said he was amazed at the village's unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Because of unbelief, Jesus, we are told, he didn't perform miracles in certain places in Matthew 13. Israel didn't enter into the Sabbath rest, promised them because of unbelief, Hebrews 3.19. And metaphorically, Israel as a branch of a tree was broken off because of unbelief, Romans 11.20. You see, evidence demands a verdict, but feelings don't care about facts. It's a problem of unbelief. And so we have this point illustrated in our passage. The feeding of the 4,000 is enough evidence, more than enough. But our second point is namely this, seeing unbelief in the face of evidence from the Pharisees and then from the disciples from verse 11 on. And, and just at this point, this, this is where also we're talking about unbelief. And we had the confession of, of sin in the liturgy. But this is where there's no more phoniness allowed. This is where you, if you're, you're a dad or a mom or a husband or a wife or you're a son or a daughter, it doesn't matter what age you are or where you're at, you've got to ask yourself, Am I believing or am I unbelieving? Do I have feelings that are taking me in one direction despite the facts? Am I believing or unbelieving? You've got to ask yourself that. You shouldn't leave here today with any doubt whether you're believing or unbelieving. And I would say if you're unbelieving, why? Why? Don't let your feelings determine your belief in the facts. But let's look at these, this unbelief illustrated then in this passage in its unbelief in the face of all the evidence. And we see it with the Pharisees, the religious experts. What did the Pharisees want? Well, it says, verse 11, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They wanted to test him. And Jesus knew they weren't coming in sincerity. They wanted to test him. And so he sighed deeply. Here's the humanity of Jesus. He's like, oh, <laughs> these people. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? They want a sign. And, and everyone here can see that Jesus had just given them a sign. He, he just did one. He just fed the 4,000. He had just, and more than, more than just the miracle, he had just enacted the role 
of a new Moses. The people were in the wilderness, and he's leading them like a new Moses. But he's also the side of Jehovah, of Yahweh, who provided the manna to Israel in the wilderness. Jesus performs both sides of the story of Exodus 16, Israel in the wilderness and getting manna from heaven. Jesus does it both. It's an amazing thing. Do they need another sign? Look what he just did. So not only had Jesus performed a miracle, he had performed a sign. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Deuteronomy, calling for the new Moses, the prophet like Moses. He was fulfilling the expectation that God would come in a highway of holiness and bring mercy and justice, even opening ears and tongues, as we will see restoring even sight to the blind, as Isaiah prophesied. The theologian John Frame, Sismag theologian, he explains this idea of signs, miracles, and wonders. And he says this, quote, As mighty acts, miracles display the great power of the Lord to control His creation. As signs, they authoritatively reveal Him. As wonders, they created in the hearts of people a religious awe as they bring people into the presence of the living God. So think about that. Miracles, signs, and wonders. That is what Jesus was doing. The sign of the healings and the feedings was showing that Jehovah had arrived. That God, the true God, the God of Israel, had arrived. And His local name was Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it was showing. But for the Pharisees, feelings don't care about facts. They didn't care. They didn't care. And so the true sign, they, they, weren't, they weren't satisfied with the signs that Jesus gave. They wanted different signs. And that's so often the case. People want Jesus, but they want Jesus on their terms. They want Jesus to be a different way than he really is. They don't want Jesus as he presents himself. They want to refashion Jesus, and they'll take him conditionally if Jesus is affirming of all the things that they prefer. But Jesus doesn't work like that. In Mark chapter 11, if you just turn a couple of pages skipping ahead, Mark chapter 11 Jesus had said in, in reference to John the Baptist, how did the Pharisees, how did all these folks, how did they view John the Baptist? And, and Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. 
And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see? Their feelings didn't care about the facts. They didn't actually care that John the Baptist, that, that what, what he did and that his baptism and his authority came from heaven. They didn't care about that because it went against their feelings. They didn't want to affirm John the Baptist. They didn't like what he did. Their feelings didn't care about the facts. And so that's what's going on here. You see, the evidence was there with John the Baptist, and they didn't want to render the verdict the evidence demanded. Their feelings didn't care about the facts, and Jesus knew that. He was calling out their unbelief. Don't ever think that somebody who is unbelieving is somehow neutral. It's a false teaching that was spread by many of the seeker-sensitive churches for about the last 25 years, that you could have these neutral seekers as if, well, we just got to tip them over into the kingdom because they're neutral right now. No, no. Unbelief is sin. Unbelief is sin. Their feelings didn't care about the facts, and Jesus called them out on it. And so it's the same. It's like the Pharisees in northern Galilee. These folks did not want to believe. They didn't want to believe, so they made up stuff to excuse their unbelief. Why is it that people in the city of Calgary don't believe in the gospel? It's because they don't want to. Oh, well... We need the church to have better public relations. Then people will believe. It's been this common trope for 25 years. Church needs better PR. We need better marketing. No, no. People don't believe because they don't want to. Because feelings don't care about the facts. And that's the, that's the sad reality. That's why people... Nobody... Few people use this language anymore. Few people describe the person who's not believing as lost. They're lost. They're lost. They're not neutral and they need more information. They're lost. They're lost and they're blind. And until we understand that, we won't have any conception of what it is than to bear witness to the truth and then to look to God to act savingly. But I'm talking about the Pharisees in this context. What about the disciples? Go from preaching to meddling, right? It's easy to talk about those people out there. What about the people in here? Go back then to Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. Verses 14 to 21, then we have this episode with the disciples. But they had the same problem. What were they worrying about? Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And right now, it's right where you're at, because you're thinking, what are we going to eat for lunch? And if you're not thinking that, you're thinking, when can I get in the air conditioning? Did we mention that 
you can donate in the box in the back or <laughs> just saying QR code. It's, it's easy. That wasn't in my notes, but I just figured I might as well throw that in. Good timing. These guys were worrying about bread when the divine bread maker was right there. He's right there. So, when Jesus starts teaching them about the doctrine of the Pharisees and Herod, he says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, by which we know even from the cross-references, but even in their understanding of it, it was the teaching of the Pharisees and Herod. The disciples were so fixated and panicked about the bread issue, they hear leaven, all they can think about is their stomach. And they act as if Jesus, the true Jesus, isn't even there. Because they're not seeing Jesus the way he really is. He's the guy, he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's talking about bread, and we're talking about bread, but we need bread. Where's the bread? That's what they want. Where's the bread? And Jesus is talking to them, and they are not seeing Jesus as he is. The disciples were acting like Jesus, the true Christ, did not even exist. Instead, there's this other dude from Galilee who's there, and is he helping in the bread question or not? I don't know. They're not seeing Jehovah incarnate with them. But i got to ask you, like, I mean, it's easy to be hard on these guys. Do you, you or me, do you act as if Jesus doesn't exist? Do you act as if he's not there? Do you act as if he's not true? Do you act as if he's not real? I will suggest now, and I'll suggest at the end of the sermon. You look at your anxiety. You look at your stress. You look at how you act in the midst of that. And it might be a pretty good indicator of whether or not you believe Jesus exists at that moment. The true Christ? Do you actually believe it at that moment? I'm guessing not. Otherwise, we wouldn't get so bent out of shape. But to these disciples, Jesus then, what does he do? He walks them back over the evidences. He goes back over it. The feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 4,000. He walks them through it. And Jesus suggested the possibility that they were like the wilderness generation in Deuteronomy 29 when God said to them, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You notice, not that you're not clever enough, no, no, that the Lord has not given you this a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Because he says, verse 17, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? 
are your hearts hardened, having eyes you do not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? And then he goes through his new Exodus, new Moses, showing the revelation of Yahweh in giving new manna. He goes over it to show them who he is. Now, in the end, we know the rest of the story. We know that the Lord did give these disciples a heart to understand. He gave, it to, he gave them that heart to all the apostles except for Judas. But at this point right now, where we're at in Jesus' ministry, it's all a little less clear. It's a little less clear. And the apostles in this context, these early disciples, they are like a theater for us to watch them act this out on stage to illustrate how unbelief works. It's also kind of to show the necessity of God doing a divine work for people to believe. But he's showing that this is how unbelief works. Their feelings, in this case, hungry feelings, just like you're having before lunch, Their feelings did not care about the facts. They were practical atheists in that moment. Practical atheists. And you've got to stop and ask yourself, how is it different for the apostles compared to us today? Is Jesus different? Are you and I different? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But am I acting like a practical atheist, just like these early disciples? Because my feelings don't care about the facts. My feelings act as if Jesus is not on the throne. Right? Right? Or you don't have those feelings. Right? No, you do. I know you do. I know you do. I know you have all kinds of feelings that in the midst of those feelings, God seems very unreal to riff off of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's saying. So this is the Pharisees, you know, the bad guys. But then the disciples, the good guys. Everybody is unbelieving in the face of evidence and they need God's help. But then the scene switches. It switches. It switches to this, you know, just some poor Poor folks. It switches in verse 22 and following. My third point, it is the illustration of belief versus unbelief. Notice the difference with the people who were coming to Jesus after this. Look at it, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man. And what's, what's their attitude? Let's test this guy. Let's test Jesus. Let's test him, see what he does. No, 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 no. They begged him to touch him. They begged him. They're beggars. They're begging. When you beg, when you're begging and pleading with someone, you are not looking for somebody to prove themselves to you. You're not sitting in judgment on them. You are assuming that they are capable, and you're not disputing that. The facts are settled, but you need help, and they can help. So you're begging them. I have nowhere else to go. 
I've tried everything else. I'm coming to you. I'm begging you to help, pleading with you. I'm not disputing that you can help because I know you can, but I'm coming to you. What a different posture. So they're begging. And then, of course, then Jesus, I mean, you know, Jesus here, he's, it's kind of the same situation like, like the paralytic that was brought by his friends uh, to Jesus. But Jesus, verse 23, took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And you know what? You have this other posture, not just of begging, but of, but of honesty. And the guy says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. He wasn't instantly perfectly healed in this instance, although Jesus could do that. But this was an occasion for this guy to be honest, to be open with Jesus, to admit where he was at. Yeah, I can see a bit. I see men as trees walking. But I need more. I need more from Jesus. I need to keep looking to Jesus. I need to keep asking for help. And that's this guy's honest about that. He needed more. He didn't like, oh, you're not good enough, Jesus. I'm out. Let's go find a different Messiah. No, no. He's there. He's honest. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Remarkable that that would be that gift to this man. Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage and he urged his hearers that we should want to have every remaining blurriness removed so that we can understand God's word and so that we can know God clearly and truly. And Spurgeon said this, quote, he said, I would urge you, if you have got sight which enables you to see it all, to fall on your knees and cry unto the great sight giver, O Master, still go on. Take every film away. Remove every cataract. And if it should be painful to have my prejudices cut away or burnt out of my eyes, yet do it, Lord. Do it until I can see in the clear light of the Holy Spirit and shall be fit to enter into the gates of the holy city where they see you face to face. End quote. Are you asking God to purge the blurriness that remains? Are you being honest with God? Yeah, you're struggling to believe. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with your feelings. Many of us are passionate people. Feelings are strong, and feelings can ignore the facts. Or you say, well, I'm not a passionate person. But actually, maybe it's not your feelings, but it's your opinions don't care about the facts. It doesn't really matter. It's all your flesh, actually. It's not about personality. 
It's about the flesh of a sinner. And you actually need some help rather than your own self-sufficiency. And you need to look to the Lord to help overcome your unbelief. You need Him to take away all of the further blurriness and all the prejudices and all the things that are standing in the way and to take them out, even if it's painful. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? I want to make two main applications. The first is what I'm going to call the social application. Because when we read this passage, when we see the evidence that demands a verdict, and yet we see people who should know better, the Pharisees, and other people who should know better, the believers, and they still are not believing in the way they ought because of all the evidence, and we see unbelief all around us, and yet there's this necessity to be a beggar, to be humble, and to be honest before God, how then should we view this world? Because many of you, you are vexed, rightly so, but vexed with what is going on in society, with what is going on in this world. You are troubled, you're anxious, you're angry. But we have to be honest about our society. We have to be honest about all people. As Romans 3 says, none seeks for God. Let's stop thinking that we're going to change society to seek after God when they are unregenerate in their heart. It's not meaning we can't apply good laws, and we should, righteous and good laws, but let's not deceive ourselves to think that people will truly seek for God. They need the work of the Holy Spirit. Stephen Charnock, great Puritan theologian, he put it this way, None seeks God as his rule, as his end, as his happiness, which is a debt the creature naturally owes to God. He desires no communion with God. He places his happiness in anything inferior to God. He prefers everything before him, He glorifies everything above him. He has no delight to know him and regards not those paths that lead to him. He loves his own filth better than God's holiness. His actions are tinctured and dyed with self and are void of that respect that is due from him to God. Very accurate description of where people are at. And we can kind of forget this. We think, oh, well, we just kind of got to massage everybody sort of into a Christianization and it'll be okay. But if we actually see where people are at before God, we see that the evidence that demands a verdict is not enough. Sorry, Josh McDowell. The evidence part of his book is really good. The idea, though, that people took away from it is that's all you got to do is just keep giving people the evidence and then they will logically believe. It doesn't work. They actually need the Holy Spirit to overcome their flesh for them to believe. They're enslaved to sin and unbelief. 
Christians can get lulled into thinking this, and you might have been thinking this lately, as I've been tempted to. I'm not saying it's just you. I'm saying it's me. We get tempted to thinking that, well, if only Christianity was back on top in society. Because right, we're on the bottom now, in case you didn't know. Like, it is not cool to be here. It is not. But we think, well, what if Christianity was cool again? What if we were back on top? Or you think, well, this, this unbelieving loved one or something, well, if only they could meet this special Christian pastor or this Christian celebrity that's in their field of influence. Well, well you know, maybe, maybe then that would be what they need. That would be the evidence that they need. Maybe we, or, or, or maybe you're thinking politically, maybe we need a Christian Caesar in power. You know, that's, that's what it would do. That, that would help. And, I mean, who knows? These all may be potential means which God may use in the life of someone to bring them into contact with Christian faith. But these things, or any other evidence, will not turn an unbelieving heart into a believing heart. It won't happen. They are powerless to do that. So we have to be wary of relying on them. Again, this is the, this is the church marketing problem. Oh, we just got to market it better. You know, make our church the church of the beautiful people and then everybody will want to come, right? Oh, you guys got to start up in your game, right? You know, then, then we get the cool crowd from Calgary coming. Well, they're not coming to Jesus. They're coming to coolness. And then we're not cool, so it doesn't work. It's a bait and switch. You see, only God can act freely to save and to heal the blind eyes and the blinded heart. Only He can do that. And if we don't get this clear, what's going to happen? We're eventually going to be disappointed. There are so many people who are deconstructing their faith and they're disappointed with God and it's because they're blaming God. They blame God because for all of the evidence that might be around, they don't see that their life was prosperous, or they don't see their loved ones converted, or they don't see things going their way. And this is the point that Jesus had in confronting the Pharisees and the disciples. They had signs, and they still wanted signs. They had bread, and they still worried about bread. And in neither case did they want Jesus. They wanted what they were worried about. And what about you? Is that what you want? Do you want what you're worried about? Or do you want Jesus? Like it's different. You trust Jesus and he'll supply accordingly. Or do you want what you want and your feelings don't care about the facts? That's, that's kind of the social application. But the second application, the last one is this, the personal application. And it's simply, are you being honest with your own unbelief? Are you being honest about it? If you look at the list of things in your mind, you can index them very quickly right now. The things that make you anxious, that make you stressed, that make you angry, that make you bitter, that make you lustful, that make you sad, that make you despairing, 
that make you paralyzed, that make you apathetic. Can you say in the midst of those moments that you are clearly believing in the true Christ at that moment? Are you truly trusting in Him? Now, if you're, a, a not, if you're not a Christian, then your unbelief in those moments simply reveals that you don't believe savingly in Jesus Christ and you are not saved. But if you're a Christian, your belief in those moments is unnatural. It's unnatural. Sure, you still carry the flesh principle in your life, but you are purchased for heaven. And so your unbelief in those moments is actually out of character. It's actually unnatural in a certain sense because you belong supernaturally to God. And that's why it's so important for the Christian believer to be honest when they're out of character, to be honest when their feelings are ignoring the facts. They need to be honest. And you can be honest, even as this blind man was honest. I see men as trees walking. I don't, I'm not there yet. I'm honest about it. And when you're honest, you can look again with hope and with humility and a bit of begging toward Jesus Christ. And just as the friends of the blind man, just as they did, and when you do that, when you seek Jesus that way, then God lovingly acts. He acts. He lovingly guides. He lovingly changes things. And you might only see men as trees walking, but your blindness will keep on being wiped away, and it will come to an end. It will come to an end. Jesus will give you a clear and clear sight of himself so that, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is then what's going on. As Jesus said in John 20, verse 27, he says it to you right now. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Don't be unbelieving, but believe in him. And if you don't know how to believe, ask him. Ask him, Lord, give me faith. Give me faith. There's no reason you shouldn't ask him to grant you the power to believe. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we confess our unbelief. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Come and pierce our souls at the deepest level of our hurts and anxieties and fears and help us to see Jesus as he really is. For we pray this in accordance with and by the power of his very name. Amen.